Chapter 12 All the Justice Money Can Buy Courage is when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway, and see it through no matter what. You rarely win, but sometimes you do. Atticus Finch, To Kill a Mockingbird In my fantasy courtroom, my persuasive and dignified lawyer, Atticus Finch, eloquently points out that everyone present enjoys certain rights and freedoms I no longer have. Smoothly, he lists them. Under Section 2 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, my freedom of conscience, of thought, and of expression is gone. Also lost is my freedom of association. Nobody wants to be seen with an anti-Semite. Under Section 3, I lost the right to participate in politics. And under Section 7, I lost my right to security of the person, since my ability to earn a living is no longer certain. The defendants are visibly sweating, squirming in their seats. Justice personified, Atticus is really hammering them. He proves beyond a doubt that all this loss has resulted from an anonymous interpretation of two misbegotten sentences cherry-picked from a long career spent affirming human rights. He concludes, uh, no, he thunders. Leslie Hughes became a journalist to give a voice to the voiceless, and her voice has been stolen. All hell breaks loose. The judge pounds his gavel and demands order. The guilty await their inevitable sentence, just like the movies. God, I love that imaginary Atticus. This recurring fantasy is followed faithfully by reality. I suspect that the first lawyer might have been right to discourage me from suing. How much fight could I actually afford? The financial costs could engulf me, never mind the emotional toll. I learn I'm lucky to live in Manitoba where I can sue without first proving I can afford to pay the defendant's legal costs if I lose. Possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars I don't have, even if I risk my house, which I am loath but willing to do. Laws are different in neighboring Ontario, where the potential defendants are located. Any lawsuit I launch there could be dismissed immediately for lack of resources. I call this the Marie Antoinette provision because, in reality, it keeps the justice system uncluttered by the underclass. But I long for my day in court. Eventually, I found another lawyer, refinanced my mortgage, and launched my lawsuit in July of 2009. The new lawyer eliminated suing the media. Defamation laws are too weak. And focuses on three opponents that he considered the loudest, most extreme in their defamation. Federal Conservative Cabinet Minister Peter Kent and two organizations, the Canadian Jewish Congress and B'nai B'rith. Money is an ever-present worry from the beginning. 
I consider an internet appeal for further funds, but that's far too risky. Who knows what kind of supporters might embarrass me? The odious Ku Klux Klan expressed delight at my alleged claim that 9-11 could be blamed on the Jews. Actual anti-Semites, disguised as benevolent groups, might show up offering barrels of money. Oh, lovely. There's a lot of work for me to do. Certain legal tasks have the appropriate title undertakings, probably because they make you long for death. One such undertaking is enough to reconsider the whole mess. The defendants are demanding I provide a copy of every receipt for every payment made to me or by me for ten full years up to 2009. This will be entered as evidence. Ten years? I can lose a piece of paper in ten minutes. Less than that. Truly an errand from hell. I'd rather be Sisyphus, watching his boulder roll downhill again. This task allegedly proves that I have not worked for or contributed to any organization with anti-Semitic ties. My savvy lawyer quietly affirms my darkest suspicions. They're testing your endurance. They want you to give up. Go away. Get lost. I do what I'm told. I undertake the bloody undertakings. Some clients love to badmouth their lawyers, but a client can also be a nasty piece of work. The tensions of conferences, depositions, and discoveries manifest physically, in my case, backaches, a ringing in the ears, a lack of concentration and general crankiness. Suddenly I'm a porcupine, bristling at every sight and sound. I marvel at the patience of my counsel, even as my confidence shrinks. My counsel, of course, is being paid handsomely for their work. I am not. Endless weeks crawl into months and years, and now it's 2012. From time to time, my two lawyers, a senior and a junior, ask me again what I want. This is a test to see if I can still remember. Given the combined stress of legal back and forth, opposition blowharding, the predictable delay and deny, and the financial distress of a legal journey. I can remember, however dimly, my goals. To remove the ugly stain of anti-Semitism from my name. To make my accusers see and admit their mistake. To deter them from intimidating other journalists to ensure the public hears the truth. And finally, I want the money back that I've borrowed from the equity in my house to defend myself. I want a trial to generate plenty of public attention. And to my dismay, my legal team does not share my enthusiasm. In fact, a trial is the last thing they want. A trial would involve either a judge or a civil jury of six people, and might last a month, but only if I'm lucky. Because there are three defendants as well as two expert witnesses on anti-Semitism, the trial might split and be delayed, possibly for several months. 
opposing counsel will not, of course, overlook the advantages of stalling. A mixed result in court, one or two guilty verdicts instead of all three, means I could win but end up owing a lot more money in legal fees on top of my own. Meter running, the trial could drag on indefinitely, like Jarndyce versus Jarndyce and Dickens' Bleak House. I now fully appreciate Dickens' dark humor. Jarndyce, jaundice, illness. I also understand why legal aid in Canada began its life not in the Ministry of Justice, but in the Ministry of Health. Injustice makes you sick, and so can the legal system. My lawyers are clear that defamation laws in Canada have seriously diminished over the past two decades, even more since my case started in 2009. The more I learn, the deeper my spirits sink. My lawyers remind me that an investment must be worth the risk, and the risk of loss at trial is ever-present. I'm told my case is strong, but the legal finesse of opposing counsel could prompt a jury to do what my attackers had done, ignore my actual words and create a presumption about their meaning. And if that happens, all would be lost. Having shown me all I have to lose in court, my lawyers lay out a new definition of winning. Avoiding a trial is winning, they explain. A trial throws everyone's control to the wind. A retraction of the charges against me, a public statement of error, would be winning. Any reasonable settlement would be winning. The public rarely remembers the details of legal outcomes, even the sensational ones. Mick Jagger's paternity suits, maybe. Otherwise, people will remember only that you fought and that you won or you lost. Remember, my lawyers admonish, the legal system does not deliver justice, rather a resolution to your problem allowing you to move forward. That resolution, they add, seldom puts you back where you were before it all happened. If I insist on a trial, the time has come to sign over my house in trust to my lawyers. They assure me that's the last thing they want to do, take away my house, but they will. They have no choice. They answer to their partners and employees to whom anyone's misfortune is just another bit of commerce. I think of Tony Soprano's sheepish expression while reassuring some poor schlub he's about to take out. It's nothing personal. It's only business. My sons have given me unqualified permission to sacrifice our house for a trial, aware that it's their only inheritance. Hey, it's only a house, they reasoned. You can get another one but you live with your name for a lifetime. Faced with the possibility of homelessness and leaving my sons nothing, I discover I can't do it. I had believed up until the very last minute that I could. I was wrong. I can't go to trial because I can't afford it. If the opposition says, see you in court, I'm finished. 
Neither can I bring myself to tell my lawyers my mistake. Nobody knows that I'm out of money, that I'm scrambling for another way to pay for a trial. Beg, borrow, steal, is this how it feels to lose your mind? After years of struggle, at this moment of deepest despair, comes salvation. Lawyers for the other side offer to go to mediation, which means the possibility of an out-of-court settlement, what my lawyers wanted all along. At worst, they say, it will cost me one day of my life, and if it doesn't succeed, we can just carry on to trial, or so they think, unaware of my financial torment. Keeping my cards close to my chest, I agree to mediation. So here we are, late 2012, mediation day, appropriately cold and foggy. My two lawyers and I are in one boardroom, the opposition in another. Catching a glimpse inside the other room, I'm disappointed to see the defendants are not present. And the room is crowded just the same. Nine people. Where'd they all come from? Well, three lawyers, their assistants, and the rest, probably insurance brokers and money men. In other words, the real decision makers. The appointed judge, a model of good looks and legal demeanor, appears only remotely interested in the proceedings. Nothing, it seems to me, is actually being mediated between boardrooms, which I point out. The judge is offended. I am not a runner, he says coolly. Well, what then is he doing here? Another question unanswered. I spend the day in full journalistic posture, jotting details in my notebook, so much that my junior lawyer offers to have it surgically removed. Stop writing in that damn book, she says, and focus on the right decision. It has to be yours. I give back only the traditional flat gaze of a journalist, revealing nothing. A near miss. Lawyers for the Canadian Jewish Congress, B'nai Brith and Peter Kent, seek a gag order to prevent me from writing about my lawsuit. I don't understand their language, but my lawyers do, and quickly shut it down. After years of legal struggle and this single, endless day, a document is finally placed in front of me to be signed. All three of my opponents have retracted their accusations. A settlement is reached, the terms of which are confidential, and I respect that. I remember superstar Jan Wong's 2013 battle with the Globe and Mail. When she sued the paper for wrongful dismissal, she won a huge financial settlement and later lost it when she wrote that the Globe had sent her a big, fat check. A writer, betrayed by adjectives, it wouldn't happen to me. My lawyers are buoyant, confident that I have won my case. Having officially restored my credibility, they think I can now resume my place in my community and in journalism. I can barely move to sign the document. I feel just an overpowering urge to sleep. Aching all over and unexpectedly disoriented, 
I managed to sign and leave, completely forgetting my purse under my chair. Now, I am as dependent on the contents of my purse as any woman on the planet, but unable to face that legal environment again. I leave it there for the next three weeks. I remain subdued. The promise or a specter of a trial has vanished. I have been able to stand up to my powerful opponents, but not to the legal system. I have, with an agonizing reluctance, surrendered my day in court only because I couldn't afford it. I used to believe that if you escape from some terrible circumstance, the joy and relief must be immediate. Some version of the Hallelujah Chorus swells in the background, but it's not like that. By challenging my detractors, I had indeed put myself on trial as well. It takes weeks for my mind and body to accept that I can once again hold my head high anywhere. I no longer carry the burdens of shame and anxiety. I've been locked up in a dark, stuffy room for almost five years, and now I am officially out. I'm free to breathe the same air as the innocent. The stain of suspicion is removed. I will not go down in history as an apologist for anti-Semitism. I'm no longer vaguely connected to Nazi philosophy and present an unbalanced threat to my community. I did not betray the victims of the Holocaust or their survivors. The best is yet to come, letting Canadians know that the charges against me are untrue, and the silver lining arrives, gleaming as it should, but alas, dragging with it another damn cloud. <laughs>